Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, I'm talking with Lydia Denworth. She is a science journalist and author. She's a contributing editor for Scientific American and writes the Brainwaves blog for Psychology Today. Her work has also appeared in other publications. Today, we're discussing her latest book, Friendship, The Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. Lydia, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, so what inspired you to write this book about friendship? I was really intrigued by the idea that there was this new science of friendship and that there was something to say that, or that there was an element to friendship that we didn't fully appreciate, which is its effect on our biology and that there is a, an evolutionary story to friendship. But also I, when I was at the, sort of learning about all that, I, it was hard not to take it personally and think, you know, am I, how good of a job am I doing on friendship? And uh, I was at a point in life where my kids are beginning to leave home and I'm losing my parents and I was feeling like friends were going to become really important. <laughs> and uh, so I thought it would be important and interesting to spend some time digging into what the science tells us about friendship. Well, um, I, I mean, I think this is interesting. Um, you know, it, it's actually an important topic, as you point out in your book, but um, probably not given a lot of focus. You know, when we're looking at disease, we, we look at diet. Um, you know, I did a little survey once when I was looking for topics for the show, and I found about eight or nine out of ten books on on diet are, um, uh, sorry, on health or about diet. And, and you know, we give other things the focus but we don't focus on the these other things our lifestyle and our community and our our social environment which as you're pointing out are very very important that's right friendship is really as important as diet and exercise when it comes to your health but we don't think of it that way and part of the reason for that is that it did take quite a while for scientists um, to to dig into that or to really study the effects of social relationships. Uh, Partly they had to even understand that that such a thing was possible because it makes it more logical that the food you put in your mouth has an effect on your biology. But a social relationship that exists entirely outside of the body, it can be hard to understand how that would get into your cells and change the way your immune system functions, but it turns out that it does. So how how did they measure that? I mean, it, this is very complicated because friendships and relationships can be different and mean different things. So how do you measure a friendship and measure its effect on somebody? The measuring is an important part of the story, kind of an interesting part of the story. It, it is one reason why friendship it, in particular, didn't get studied was because scientists require, well, they need definitions and they need measurements. They need variables to compare in order to, um, you know, develop their theories and then 
um, develop ev- evidence one way or the other. And so what, um, what happened is that it was, in fact, really when we started recognizing that there is friendship or something like it in other species that made it easier to come up with a kind of baseline definition. Um, and because in other animals, you can more easily strip away some of the complex variables that exist in, in human lives. And what they have found is that now I think we can safely say that the, the simplest or at, a, at its minimum a friendship requires three things. It's a long-lasting relationship. It's positive, so it makes both individuals feel good. And it has, it's cooperative, so it has some reciprocity and give and take in it. Um, and, of course, another definition of friendship in humans is that friends are the people that you don't have sex with or you're not related to, except it turns out that plenty of us consider either our romantic partners or some of our biological relatives to be friends, but not everybody does. Some of that is about culturally about how you use the, the term, and some of it is, is uh, really, though, interestingly qualitative, you know, that some of those family relationships, some of those people are not great friends to us. <laughs> um, so I think that the new science, it both clarifies what a friend is, but it also blurs the lines in term in the way we always have traditionally thought of it. I now think of a friend really truly as a quality relationship, as a statement of the, about the quality of your relationship. Well, um, what, one thing you said, and, and you talk about this in your book, is is long lasting friendships. And um, you know, I've had this conversation with my my patients quite a bit. But we, as we get older, friendships change. And even if we develop a new friendship, it's not the same as those ones that we had in childhood. There's there's always a little bit of something missing. Is this something that that has been observed and studied? Um, I am, so, yeah, <laughs> not exactly. In ter- I mean, to answer your question directly, has it been, has it been studied? I haven't seen those studies. What I have, what I have seen and heard is that it's true that there's a kind of shared history that we have with people we've known a long time and that that can be very special. It's also true that the relationships we form when we're young, so in adolescence, for instance, are very intense, and our brains are actually at a point in their development, the social brain, um, when you're an adolescent, where the, what's, what feels good and makes you happy actually feels better <laughs> than it does when you're an adult, and, and vice versa. So the goods, the highs are higher and the lows are lower in adolescence. That has to do with the way your brain is actually responding and processing the world, responding to and processing the world. And and what that means, though, is that you remember those moments with your friends when you were a teenager differently <laughs> than you remember moments with friends when you're in your 20s or 30s or older. Um, that said, it is actually possible to make a really good friend at any point in life. And I mean, my closest friends today are all people that I met after college, so in my adult life, um, either through work or through my kids or other things. Um, 
And and I am not sure that I would say that I don't have as rich a relationship with those people as I have with people that I'm still friends with from earlier in my life. So I think it's about you can never get back that shared history if you didn't share it, of course, <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to state the obvious. Um, but And so that can be very powerful, but it isn't by itself enough to make um, a really good friendship last. And so one of the things I find I hear a lot from people now that I'm going around the country talking about this is that people say that they have these friends from their early parts of their lives where there's a lot of positive, but also a lot of negative. And we often feel that that shared history forces us to stay friends with someone who is actually not necessarily serving our best interests anymore. So I guess I'm flipping your question on its head, but Mm -hmm. I think it's worth really interrogating whether, um, you know, whether that's an assumption that we make that that's the best kind of friendship or whether, um, or, or not. Well, I think it's hard to, to just walk away from a shared history and from, from somebody who, you know, brought you joy, even if it was in the past. I mean, I, I read that in your book and I, I can definitely relate to that, you know, having um, friends my whole life. And then, you know, sometimes you think this might not be perfect all the time, but I know this person inside and out and they know me inside and out and um, our our journey together is still something that I value. Um, it, you know, that made me think about, about that. So I can definitely see that, that this is something that a lot of people would do. Yeah, I think it's good just to think about it, like exactly as you say, because a lot of those relationships really are very wonderful and rich relationships. Um, but what is important is to make sure that you're not just hanging on only for the shared history um, and that you are getting positive benefit from this relationship today. But I'm also not saying that you have to walk away. I mean, you can if a relationship is really toxic or draining all the time. But maybe the thing about friendship is that it takes time. It takes time to make friends. Uh, and it takes time to maintain friends. Uh, you know, you if you've put in all the time early on, then you you know you can. We, we all a lot of us have those friends that we say that what we love about them is that we don't get to see them very often, but when we do, we pick up right where we left off. Uh, yeah. And that is a lovely kind of friendship, and, and that works. But you still have to do that picking up where you know you have to have that moment of reconnecting and talking, and and um, and and so it's. Uh, you have to put in time, and we all of us only have so much time in the day or in the week or in our lives. And so you can't be the same level of friend with everyone, right? And so sometimes you have to shuffle the furniture. You want to make sure that the people closest to you with whom you spend the most time are really giving you... um, or that you have really strong quality relationships with them because those are the relationships that are going to have the biggest effect on your health. So from a purely health perspective, what matters is the quality of the, of the bonds that you have with the people close to you. Um, which is important. And so we, we, you said earlier that as children, those bonds are different. Our ups and downs are different. So I would guess that the joy that we get from a friendship is also uh, possibly stronger because if, if we're happier, easier, then we would enjoy that person more. 
Yes, I think that's right. I mean, we so the the reward centers in the brain are really kind of flooded by social interaction when you're young, and uh, and that's why that's what makes us keep coming back for more. You know, is that it? It feels rewarding. It feels important. Um, and so, yes, you and those those memories. Memory is laid down in the brain. Um, in connection with the intensity of the experience. So the more strongly you feel something, the more likely you are to remember it. And so that's part of why we remember the people we were close to at that age um, more more intensely. And yeah, I, I, I suppose it is true that you you like them more, or at least you feel like you like them more. You feel more emotional, maybe, about the liking. <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> if I'm putting that very well, but I, I think of being a teenager and feeling you just feel so strongly about things in all directions, right? Um, well, you know, that definitely seems to be the case. I mean, and I, I think also the structure of, of our lives are different when we're younger than when we're older. And, you know, we pair off and have kids and have a career and, and things are different than we're just in school. And you're basically in a room full of people that are your age that could potentially be your friend. And that doesn't happen at any other time in our lives as well. Um, you know, even if you're in an office, everybody is in a different stage of life. They're not all your exact age doing the exact same thing as you with the same things in common. That's exactly right. Yeah. You never get that back. And and I mean, college, especially if you live in a dorm and you, you know, um, you have hours and hours and hours to spend um, with people, with peers, right? And, and when you're an adult, it's just not that way. Uh, so it's, it doesn't, it, our lives are not set up as naturally for making friends at any other point in our lives. But that doesn't mean that we can't and don't. We do make friends as adults, but we do have to work at it a little bit more. We have to be more intentional about it. Yeah. Um, you know, I do hear this a lot that um, as we're older, it is harder to make those really strong bonds because everybody is also going about their lives. And, and you said that um, although a friendship would be people that you don't have sex with, a lot of people would say that their partner is their best friend, um, which is probably a goal a lot of people have in their, their marriage or partnerships. And, um, you know, that that can also deter us from reaching out as much um, from our our relationships to create bonds if our friends have moved on or moved away and and um, you know we may our, our circle might become smaller yeah that's true and it's, uh, it's it is important I think that married couples make time for each member each spouse to have other friends in their lives as well Uh you sort of hear all the time, famously, that you know, women, well, women are generally better at doing that, maintaining some friendships outside of a marriage, and men sometimes put all their emotional eggs in that one basket, which isn't, um, obviously, I'm speaking of a uh, heterosexual marriage, but, the, but, if, um, but it is Im- most critical that you have at least one, like, for your health, the difference from zero to one friends is most important. And if that one friend is your spouse, well, at least you've got that. And it is, it is sort of part of how we think of marriage today. We expect, we have really high demands that we expect our partner to be our soulmate. 
and 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 our best friend. Although interestingly, that that does seem to be cultural. I don't know if you saw the statistic in the book, but a, a study that really made me laugh um, asked a whole bunch of people, thousands of people in Jacksonville, Florida, if they think of their spouse as their best friend, and sixty percent said yes. And then they asked the same question in Mexico City, and almost no one said yes. <laughs> um, and so I think, though, that's not a statement about the quality of marriage in Mexico. It is a statement about the use of the word friend for a spouse. So it's uh, and and you know you have you have a complicated life with your with the a spouse that you live with every minute. So most. The healthiest thing is to have a great positive relationship with your spouse and to still have another friend or two outside of it um, that that from from whom you can get other things. Mm-hmm. Well, and and that might take some some pressure off of a, a marriage or a partnership um, just because you're not you know putting the entire burden of everything, but also just to take. Um, a different perspective on life outside to to another person. Um, I hope I'm say, saying what I mean to say here, um, but I can see how that would definitely help a marriage as well, although our topic today is not marriage. Right, right. Well, our topic today is only marriage <laughs> in that the question applies of whether your spouse is your friend. <laughs> exactly. Um, um, we're going to uh, talk about this more when we get back. Um, we're talking today with Lydia Denworth, and she we're discussing her new book, Friendship, and we'll be back shortly. We're on Alexa Smart Speakers and Connected Devices. Hey, Alexa, play Being Here podcast on Apple Podcasts. Try it now. <laughs> when a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, it's probably the most frightening thing that's ever happened to her. Friends and family often don't know what to do for support, not to mention the patient herself. That's where Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio comes in. Join Becky Olson, breast cancer survivor and advocate. She helps by providing inspiration, information, and most of all, hope. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. 
Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Riss. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, I'm talking with Lydia Denworth, and we're discussing her new book, Friendship. So, Lydia, do we understand why friendship is so important? I mean, this is something that we've all done. We've created friendships our whole lives. But why why do we do it? Uh, We do it because we have an instinctual need to belong and friendship is part of this evolutionary drive to connect with other people and it's interesting because when we think about evolution we often think of survival in the fit of the fittest and competition and there has been plenty of competition but it turns out that there has also been a survival of the friendliest so that the individuals in a variety of species who are the most strongly bonded with other Individuals are tend to live the longest and have more and healthier babies. And in evolutionary terms, you can't do better than that. Um, reproductive success and longevity are what you're after. And so, in humans, we are really doing a lot of the same. We're doing the same things. We just we didn't understand it as um, coming from that same place. Everybody has all, often thought of friendship as cultural. We've thought of it as very pleasurable and lovely. Um, even Aristotle talked about how what an important part of life it was. So it's not that we didn't value it, but we didn't think of it as invaluable. And that is what it turns out to be. Um, and so that's why understanding that there's an evolutionary piece to friendship is so important because it it deepens, it should deepen our appreciation for this thing that we've all been doing. I mean, one of the things I say about friendship is that its importance has been hiding in plain sight. You know, it feels both obvious and profound to me that to understand just how elemental this is. Well, and um, it, it, it's interesting because you do talk about in your book how it has um, been devalued and, you know, it isn't something we focus on. And when we're talking about um, the success of our children, which I've done um, a few shows on one for boys and one for girls because their stress has been different and it caused by a similar um, goal is to make them as stressful as possible in life. So they're doing schoolwork and they're involved in stuff and they're volunteering and they have a job and and they have no time anymore and when I look back on my childhood I had a lot of time with my friends you know we were outside playing in the in the fields and 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 you know we were having sleepovers and playing after school was actually a really big part of that we'd go home for dinner and and that doesn't seem to be um as common anymore that kids are getting this free time and especially alone to develop the friendships that we had when we were younger it's 
true that childhood, I heard, um, I heard some, it described recently as the checklisted childhood. And I think that there's an element of that that is true for many kids that we have so many extracurricular activities and everybody is being pushed to achieve. Um, at least in certain circles, that is true. Uh, I, I do sometimes think though that we, we, especially parents who are at home, fail to recognize how much time kids spend together in school socializing um, face-to-face. So there is a good bit of that there. But, but yes, they need some time. They need just unstructured hangout time. Um, and that's why I, one of the things that has come out of my reporting is my under, appreciating things like sleepovers more. I always used to think I dreaded sleepovers as a parent, um, mainly because I didn't get enough sleep. <laughs> them not getting enough sleep. But, um, but I now sort of think that it's one of the last areas of completely just unstructured time that kids can have together and they need to they need that they need to learn how to because well there are things that they get from just hanging out in that way that um they learn how to be a friend they learn how to be part of a group they learn how to give support and not just take it which you get you know with your parents you can have a certain kind of social relationship but it's not the same as what you get from your peers and and they sometimes they they have to Sometimes it's not all perfect and happy when kids are together, but there's some learning that they have to do about how to socialize and how to be a friend that, that they get from hanging out together. And so, yes, you're right. We need to make sure that we're encouraging that kind of behavior. Um, another thing I do believe, though, is that things like video game time is much more social than most adults appreciate. Um, so it turns out that 97% of boys play video games and 83% of girls and three quarters of them are not doing it alone. They're doing it with somebody else, either in the room or over the internet. And, uh, and I think that it's easy for adults to sort of just miss the connection that, that is happening because it doesn't look like something that we grew up with. Um, well, and so I, I, there was a story in your book about your son and his best friend, and this is where you figured out that, um, you know, video games weren't just, you know, them staring at a screen playing video games, as you described kind of the conversation that they were having and the bonding that they were doing was different than if they were strangers and not best friends their whole life. So they're still having that quality time together, even though there is a screen in the room. Right. They're having, they're having time together, yes. I mean, it's, it's also important to have other kinds of time together, but so many times, and I was guilty of this, I mean, in that, that story is, you know, that I come back from being away watching these monkeys for the book, watching these monkeys socialize and talking all about friendship, and then I was, came home and found them on the couch playing video games, and I was so frustrated because I felt like they hadn't left from that spot on the couch since I went away <laughs> and I, and then it felt like that was all they were doing and that they were doing nothing. And then I realized, no, they're not doing nothing. They, they were very much. And I, and I thought the fact that here I had just been um, watching monkey socialize and thinking about friendship and I still missed it. I was so focused on the video game that I didn't see this connection between them because the fact that they were hanging out right next to each other in close proximity and yeah, chatting and bantering and joking and laughing and sort of, ca- you know, catching up on life. Um, 
and that that all was valuable. And and uh, and so I think that we we make that mistake. What I hope people can do is just sort of stop and check themselves occasionally and say, well, wait a minute, what am I judging here? And am I seeing this interaction between these kids, you know, accurately? Or am I, how much of my bias am I bringing to it? Well, and, and well, and that's exactly what can happen now that we're talking about screens as well. Um, friendships and and socializing are different than they used to be. And there's a lot of talk about how social media is changing or ruining that. Um, and uh, you had a bit of a different take on the ruining part, which I thought was interesting. Can you just tell me um, what social media is, is doing? Yeah, I have a more measured response to this, uh, and that is because I. It turned out that I there was a raft of new research coming out just as I was finishing the book, and um, and I'll say that I I kind of dreaded having to wade into that whole area of science because it felt like a quagmire. It was all you know conflicting papers and, you know, this one says it makes us lonely and this one says it makes us connected and how can both be true and things like that. And um, But a couple of things have happened. One is that it's only, it's not even 15 years uh, really since the, um, since social media took over the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the first, well, many of the early studies that looked at it were pretty blunt instruments. So they just counted screen time and they didn't count what people, they didn't look at what anybody was doing when they were online or who they were doing it with. And and that turns out to be really important. So most scientists today or most, you know, of the people who study this would tell you that the concept of screen time is essentially meaningless because we're on screens. In some ways we're on screens like all day, but we we might be working, we might be Skyping with our grandmothers, or we might be watching pornography or playing Grand Theft Auto, and all those things are different. You know, kids might be doing homework, um, or they might be up to no good. And so you need to know, you need context and content, or you need information about context and content when you're thinking about the effects of digital technologies. And, um, and we're starting to do the science more rigorously and with more nuance now, there's still a lot we don't know. But so I feel that the later, the more recent studies are, are asking smarter questions about it. And one of the, so part of my, the reason that I'm more measured about this is that there's been a series of studies that have just come out in the last year or so, or are about to come out, that look at all of the research that's been done. So for instance, one study is a meta-analysis that is a study of studies, so it combines data, and it's taken everything that's been done on social media and well-being since 2006, which is the very first study, and it finds that, yes, there are some negative effects and there's some positive effects, but they are all very small, and this biggest effect is positive, and it's in relationships. Um, And so what that turns out to mean is that um, if you use social media as one more channel with which to communicate with people you also see offline, um, then you strengthen those relationships. 
And people who have a bigger network online tend to have a bigger network offline as well. So often our online and offline lives mirror each other. And furthermore, one of the things they're finding is that the people for whom social media does seem to escalate or to escalate, yes, escalate depression or anxiety, those are people who often already suffer from quite a lot of depression and anxiety. And now that doesn't mean that the social media is not a problem, but it says that the direction of the problem or that the that we need to be looking at who's at more risk and not worrying about the larger population in the same way. Um, and and then the last thing I'd say is I would just sort of, you, you said in your question that friendship is changing. I don't actually think that friendship is changing. I think we still have the same kinds of good, close friends, most of us do, um, that we have always had. And we see people in person a lot. And when we do, we interact in much the same way we always have. But what's different is that we have these things called Facebook friends or, mm-hmm. you know, Instagram friends or whatever it is, whatever platform you're on. And and that is not the same thing. But I think we know that. And we, that's why we say Facebook friend as opposed to friend, you know. Um, we don't. And in fact, when they did a study and they asked people how many of your Facebook friends are actual friends, it was only like 30 or 40 percent, something like that. So, you know, we do know the difference. And when and the kind of friendship that I'm primarily talking about that has to do with your health are those are those in person close friendships. That said, there's a, a value in weaker ties, like or the kinds of Facebook friends that are literal Facebook friends, in that you knew them 30 years ago and you haven't seen them since, or you know it's the friend of a colleague from work that somehow you got connected to online or something like that, but you don't, you're not really close to them in any way, but that still can serve a purpose as long as we don't mistake it for the real deal. Well, and I I actually agree with you about social media. I've thought about this a lot and, and um, you know, I've done shows where, um, you know, we're talking about screen time and that kind of thing. But, but what, what I've seen is that, it, it just has changed things and things have to change it and develop. Um, my niece is in her 20s and I'm in my 40s and um, we we actually Snapchat almost every day. And this is um, my way of communicating with her and staying close to her on a daily basis. And that has actually enriched our relationship so that when we see each other in person, we have a daily account of what's happened in our lives. And, and it, it's not something that has gotten in our way at all. We don't Snapchat instead of seeing each other. Um, and, you know, there was some questions when we started doing it because of my age, why would I do that? Um, but I, I just saw it as, you know, relating to her in a way that she relates to the world. And um, I don't see that social media has, I, I'm sure in some places it can get in the way of somebody who refuses to leave their home and it's their only contact with the world. Um, or they've become obsessed with it. But I think it has just changed how we're relating to each other and possibly opened up some doors a little more because before we had Facebook, we were um, only talking with somebody if and knowing about their lives 
if that conversation was happening, but this way we can get an update and then we can call them if we're concerned or happy for them. Right. So it's important to recognize that there that there really are some benefits and that the research shows that on balance, the benefits are outweighing the negatives, at least when it comes to relationships. But but as you pointed out, there are people for whom it's a problem. There are people who who um, are really stressed out by the content of their feed, people who have fear of missing out, people whose depression is exacerbated. And that's important and we need to we need to look at that. But what but the headlines that have happened over the last decade have been pretty hyperbolic and hysterical and it just does the evidence does not bear those out. And so mm-hmm. I, I think we just we need to take a breath. And then, and then we need to try to be smart about it. And it is true. We need to put down our phones when we are with people in person. I mean, that is critical. And we need to be present. And things like eye contact trigger all of the social parts of the brain to get going and language and things like that. And, and so it's important. There is a difference to interacting with somebody while you're really present and paying attention and when you're distracted by your phone. So that is not good. And there's no I would never argue that that is good, but I think people are awfully quick to just assume that friendship as a whole is suffering, and that is not really true. Yeah, that's good to hear. Um, We're going to talk about this more when we get back. We're talking today with Lydia Denworth, and we're discussing her new book, Friendship. We'll be back shortly. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has a mobile app for iOS, Android, or Amazon Kindle. Visit the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. We're on the pulse of the world with great shows and hosts. The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel is also on Twitter. We've got ideas to keep you healthy, breaking health news, and more. Follow us on Twitter at Voice AM Health. That's at Voice AM Health. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back today. I'm talking with Lydia Denworth, and we're discussing her new book, Friendship. So, Lydia, what um, what has been the outcome of studies on friendship? What have we learned? Well, the, I think that the really important thing that we've learned is this, is this connection to health that we've been talking about, but maybe I'll just dig into that a little bit more um, because it's so important. And it started in the second half of the 20th century when 
um, people started to look more for the causes of chronic disease like cancer and heart disease. And, and they started to do these very long-term studies of thousands of people in a community and, you know, every couple of years taking their blood pressure and various medical evaluations. But in there, uh, people had the idea of asking some very rudimentary questions about social integration, like, are you married? Do you belong to a church or a volunteer organization? You know, how many friends, how often do you see, how many times a month do you see your friends or your family? Things like that. Different questions for different studies, but, but, oh, in that vein. And when people started about 10 years in, so the first, the first study of this came out in 1979, and it was of a study in Alameda County, California, where they had um, followed, they began in 1965, and over the first nine years of the study, what they found was that people who reported being more socially integrated at the beginning, who had more social connections, were more likely to have survived um, and over the course of the next nine years. Or, seen the other way, the people who were more socially isolated were more likely to have died. But now all that was, I mean, so that was really significant because it was the first time that anybody had linked social relationships and health in this way, but it was a correlation. You know, they weren't showing any kind of causation or saying that the one thing was driving the other. They just were noticing that these two things were happening at the same time. Um, and so from there, the, the interest in that question really took off. And over the years since, we've been adding to what we know about it, and, we, and it has become very clear that, that the more socially isolated you are, the greater your risk of mortality. And in fact, um, in some studies, it's twice as much uh, your, your, the risk of, or the risk of being socially isolated is as bad for your mortality as smoking. I mean, it's really up there, <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. and it is. And being socially isolated or being socially connected is as powerful as quitting smoking. It's actually more powerful than quitting smoking, um, and more powerful than pretty much anything else you can do for your health. Now, in that time that they had these ideas about, or that they saw this relationship between these two things, the the, the obvious question was, well, what's going on? Why is this? case. And one of the things that they thought was that it might be a con- something called social support. Social support is covers a whole lot of ground. It's, it's the, you know, when if let's say somebody is sick or breaks their leg and you send over, you know, you take a lasagna over because they can't cook or something or, you know, or you drive someone to the hospital. It's most pragmatic. It makes sense that you might live longer if you have more friends because your friends are around to drive you to the hospital or even to notice that you need to go. Um, and that is, a, that is true, and that is, a, that is a factor. But it turns out then that in other animals, so especially in baboons, they were do, is where they first did this work, they found when they watched baboons over generations and over decades, and tracked exactly who did what to whom and how long they lived and how many healthy babies they had, they found that the baboons with the strongest social bonds also live longer and had more and healthier babies. But the thing is that baboons don't drive each other to the hospital. And so it has to be more 
been there has to be something deeper going on in in um, well in animals' bodies that social relationships are giving us. And so since then, we've that that research on the baboons was first published in two thousand and three. So in these last sort of fifteen to twenty years a lot of time and attention has gone into trying to understand what exactly is happening under the skin. And what we know is that social connection on one hand or the other side of it, social isolation um, and loneliness, impact cardiovascular functioning, immune function, cognitive health, mental health, stress responses, and even the rate at which your cells age. So you age biologically faster if you are lonelier. Um, and there are different, the explanation for those different things that I listed, they vary in terms of exactly how it is that, that you know, um, a social relationship is affecting it. And, in, and there's still a lot we don't know. But just to give one example, in the immune system, when um, researchers tested the blood of really lonely adults and then very socially connected adults, they found that the in the immune system, so the, the genome, the genes and the gene expression, so how genes get turned on or off or regulated by according to your experience or your lived environment, um, the gene expression was different in the lonely people in the immune system and then it was in the, in the less lonely people. And what, what happened was the lonely people were much more susceptible to uh, inflammation and to viruses and really socially connected people with lots of friends were more resilient to inflammation and to viruses. And so there was this literal change in the gene expression in the immune system in lonely people and in people with lots of friends. And that was a stunning finding, <laughs> right? Yeah. It, I mean, you wouldn't think that it would get in and change the way the gene, your, you know, why would your white blood cells, your leukocytes, why would they care about loneliness? But apparently they do. Well, it, 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 it's interesting as well because we are seeing a rise of depression and anxiety um, and probably with that loneliness in the world. Um, I think it's the highest it's ever been. And we're also seeing people have more chronic illnesses and um, and sometimes unexplained illnesses. And, and I'm wondering if a lot of it is related to each other because as our mental health is declining, you know, our white blood cells are going down and then we get sicker and we're probably not eating as well and we're feeling lonely and isolated because we're sick and it seems like it can go in a, in a circle as well um, with one affecting the other. Yeah, that is true. And But I do, I do want to point out that you know, from the start, people who were studying loneliness uh, heard all the time that other people saying, well, but, you know, it, it, it's which direction does it go? Because if you're depressed, then you're going to, you know, be lonely. And, and what they found is that loneliness was driving the depression, um, not the other way around so much, that, that, um, that the loneliness was often usually coming first. And that is important because that's exactly as you say, like if that's where it's starting, then we need to reach all the way back to um, thinking about social connection all along the way, and then maybe we could head off some of these um, important health issues that we have that people have in these this, these rise the rise in mental health. I mean, it may not be the only piece of this, but it is it is clearly a piece, and it's just not something anybody 
was focused on for a long time. Well, and it, when we try to be very scientific, we would focus on, you know, um, diet will do this to your heart and, and you know, exercise and all the other things that we know are, are affecting our health and we will focus on those. But um, community hasn't always been a, a big topic of discussion, but we now know, especially with your book, how important this is for us to make sure that we have community and we have that support system around us so that we can keep our immune system up and, and keep the rest of our our life and health um, going along the way it's supposed to. That's right. I mean, it's one of these things that sort of, come, I, at one point, I'm not sure I left the line in the book, but I kind of had this joke about how recognizing the importance of this was like, like a a scientific Halley's Comet. It sort of would, every once in a while, <laughs> somebody would notice and point it out, but but it was never sustained. And, uh, it's, and it's interesting because, of course, it's something that people need to think about on an individual level, but it really is something we need to think about on a community level as well because, you know, policymakers can and, and planners can, you know, make differences in the way they plan physical space or public space, you know, making places where people can congregate or not. And the military can, can change their thinking on how much they move a family. So because every time you move a family and the kids move, you know, they have to start again. And they're always the new kid in a new school. And so sometimes it's easier on a military base where at least everyone is in a military family where they move a lot, but that's not always the case. And, um, and you're still the new kid, right? And that can be very difficult for people growing up in that situation to, to feel like they get the chance to really make those good, strong, early friendships that matter a lot. Um, and, you know, companies and, and, or managers in in thinking about the communities that they create in their offices, um, you know that it turns out that there is a whole lot of benefit in terms of productivity and efficiency and morale when people don't when they people feel connected at work. They don't have to be best friends with everyone they work with, but if they have friends at work, they get better reviewed. They're less likely. There's less turnover. There's there and there's more productivity and efficiency. Um, which I can see, um, you know, I, I tell people all the time, it's important to enjoy what you do, whether it's the work or just the people that you're working with. Um, you know, people will complain about their jobs for um, those, those two reasons, either they don't like it or they don't like the people. And you're there for, you know, eight or more hours a day. So it's important to have those connections and those bonds um, at work because that's part of your community. You don't just go there and then go home and have community. Everything you do all day is part of your community, even if it's just, you know, recognizing the the teller at the grocery store or, or that kind of thing. They're still part of your community. That's right. And I do think it's important, even though I stress the um, having a few really high quality bonds and people close to you. And that's really, that is the most important thing. It also is important to have that, even those, those friendly interactions with your neighbor or the, you know, the dry cleaner or the um, person in the supermarket um, that you see on a regular basis or your colleague at the water cooler, 
if those interactions are friendly and you smile and you say hi, you catch up a little bit or you, you know, even if it's just a smile instead of a frown, that has that has a knock-on effect on your on your well-being, both physical and and psychological. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a, a good note to end on. Um, if anybody is is interested um, in your book or has any questions, how can they get a hold of you or your book? Uh, well, my website is a good place to start. It's lydiadenworth.com. And um, I'm on Twitter at Lydia Denworth. I'm on uh, Facebook at Science Writer Lydia. And I have a newsletter on the website people can sign up for to follow along with my work and get get everything in their inbox um and uh, that's uh, that covers it <laughs> there's, there's a contact form on the website so um. well that that's perfect um that's a good place to start um your book had way more information than what you and i would have time to go over in in an hour and um it was very informative so i recommend anybody pick it up i think when we're talking about health and you're looking at what you can do for yourself this is a really good place to start is with your community around you the book is called friendship the evolution biology and extraordinary power of life's fundamental bond so lydia thank you so so much for joining me today thank you so much for having me and if anybody listening wants more information about my story and what I went through to get back to health you can find that on my website at dr-risk.com don't forget to follow me on Facebook Twitter or Instagram and um, thank you so much for listening today be sure to make today a great day Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america health and wellness channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericahealth.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network it's staff and management.